Christian Parenting. Hey, if you're a regular listener to my podcast, you might have wondered what that little Christian Parenting tagline is at the beginning of each show. Well, those are my friends at ChristianParenting.org. Since the summer of 2020, Christian Parenting has taken over the production of this podcast, and you can tell they do an incredible job. They actually produce over a dozen podcasts for Christian moms and dads, as well as a treasure trove of resources from blogs to books to Bible memory tools. More than half a million moms and dads from around the world benefit from the great works of Christian parenting every month. Christian parenting is a 100% donor-funded ministry. That means that they rely on generous donors like you to support the future creation of parenting products. You can check out a lot of their stuff again at christianparenting.org. Many people who listen to this podcast are barely scraping by financially, and some are in countries closed to the gospel with no Christian community to speak of as they raise their children. If God has put you in a place to be generous with those who are doing good work, would you please help support Christian parenting? It's as simple as texting CPGIVE to 474747 to make a generous donation. If you do, you'll be entered into a drawing to win a basket of goodies in their Perfectly Imperfect Parenting Bundle, full of resources to encourage you and your kids, as well as the $100 Amazon gift card. Once again, you can bless half a million parents each month by texting CPGIVE to 474747. Hey, thank you. I appreciate you and your heart for blessing families around the world. I can't think of a more timely episode as today I'm joined by Sissy Goff and we talk about worry, anxiety, and developing an emotional vocabulary in our children. I'll have parents who are anxious and have done some work will say to their kids, you know what, my worry monster has been bothering me and I'm not going to listen to him because I'm stronger than he is. And that is modeling for our kids a really healthy approach to worry and anxiety. When we deal with it and we're educated and working through our own stuff, it can be a game changer for kids. Hey, my name is Jay Holland, and this is Let's Parent on Purpose. It's a podcast to help you thrive and not just survive your parenting years. Each week, I'll bring you an insight or an interview that will help strengthen your marriage, your family, or your personal walk with Jesus. And if you find it helpful, I encourage you to subscribe, share it with your friends, and you're welcome to go to letsparentonpurpose.com to find all kinds of past articles, issues, and resources to help your family. feels like a number of our children have been living in a pressure cooker and that did not get any better when the, all of the complications of COVID-19 came along. Um, I have seen as a youth pastor that the struggles with worry and anxiety and depression have increased just dramatically over the 20 years that I've been involved in student ministry. And as a dad, uh, I have noticed it in my own house as well that uh, there's just a much higher level of anxiety and worry in both my boys and girls than I would have naturally thought. Um, especially living in a in a you know a two parent home that that loves the Lord, that has a great church community, um, has good school system. You know all of the things that you would think should minimize uh, worry and anxiety don't take it away. And so I was really excited to be able to get a hold of Sissy Goff, who I have uh, been a big fan of for the last several years since I found her book. Are My Kids on Track, that she wrote with David Thomas. Um, that one is about the 12 emotional, social, and spiritual milestones that your children need to reach. I'll put a link to that and a couple of other resources from Sissy in the show notes. Sissy is the director of a child and adolescent counseling at Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville, Tennessee, where she works alongside her counseling assistant slash pet therapist, Lucy the Havanese. Since 1993, she's been helping girls and their parents find confidence in who they are and in who God is making them to be, both as individuals and families. Sissy's a sought-after speaker for parenting events and the author of 12 books, including the best-selling Raising Worry-Free Girls and Braver, Stronger, Smarter. Uh, I recently got a copy of her new book, Brave, A Teen Girl's Guide to Beating Worry and Anxiety, and it is fantastic. I already have a young lady I'm ready to hand my book off to because I'm not a teen girl. Um, in this episode, we're going to talk about the different cultural and social influences that are raising uh, worry and anxiety and depression 
in our kids, including this this new trend of I'm going to kill myself, kind of being the trump cards that, that kids lay down uh, when things get out of control. Uh, then we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how, uh, as moms and dads, we can have a good toolbox that will help us over the long term uh, kind of decrease the anxiety, decrease the worry, help help children name their emotions and feelings and gain some perspective in life. This is a really, really good conversation, not just for how it will help your children, but you might recognize a few things in yourself that that are going to be helpful because if you struggle with worry and anxiety, this is going to worry you, but your children are much more likely to struggle with worry and anxiety. So listen to the podcast, uh, listen to this, please share it with those. I, I know that you are friends with people who might have a very acute challenge with this, and, and this can be a real blessing and help for them. Uh, also, if you like it, I want to encourage you to check out uh, RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. That's the core website that, that Sissy and her partners at Daystar run. Um, and they also have a fantastic podcast. You might start listening to it and never come back to Let's Parent on Purpose called Raising Boys and Girls. It's really good. You should check it out, especially if this conversation is helpful to you. And then one final thing, if you want to be on my weekly email where I send you tons of free goodies and resources that will help you, but not overwhelm you in your parenting, you can get on my things for Thursday email by texting the word things, T-H-I-N-G-S to the number 66866. That's things to 66866. Without further ado, I want to have you really enjoy listening and learning from my conversation today with Sissy Goff. Sissy, it is a real honor to have you on Less Parent on Purpose. I've been uh, stalking you and your books for a couple of years, and now it's a real joy to actually get to converse with you. Thank you so much oh, for joining Jay, me. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad to get to talk to you today. It's really fun to be on here. Yeah. So let's start out with a not fun question, because I want to okay. dive right in. Um, okay. I have quoted something that that you had in "Are My Kids on Track?" Um, it was like one of those light bulb sentences, and it made so much sense. When I was young, when we were little, uh, and things got out of hand or we were hyper stressed, uh, we would use, you know, we would say, "I'm going to run away from home." And uh, and some of us actually tried to run away from home, but you know, <laughs> then you got hungry thirty minutes later or two hours later, totally. and you turned around and came back home. Um, and, and you said in, in are my kids on track, uh, that the, the equivalent statement for this generation to, I'm going to run away from home is I'm going to kill myself. And, uh, that was, that was shocking to me, but I see that it's true. And I'm just curious, like, how did we get there? What do you, what do you think happened that we went from, you know, putting a little stick on your bandana and, you know, trouncing around the neighborhood to, to this extremism? I love that question. And I'm with you. I just hate that it's gotten here. But but I mean, I'm seeing evidence of it in my office every day as a therapist. And I mean, I think there are so many things that are contributing to it. But I think we do live with an intensity in, I hate to even say 2021, 2020, because there's so much about those right. that are not what we're talking about. But I would have even said in 2019, obviously, when the book came out, um, that I think has all kind of created this perfect storm for kids now that feel so deeply and they don't understand what's going on with themselves. And on one hand, I think we've done this beautiful job of equipping kids with talking about emotions and understanding. And we were, we're using more of that than our parents did, but we haven't done as great of a job of giving them resources. And so I think kids feel deeply and have no idea what to do with it. And so they're trying to use words to describe the depth of those feelings and sometimes to get our attention in the midst of all the noise. And so, you know, now kids don't say I'm worried. They say I have anxiety. They don't say I'm sad. They say I'm depressed. And so they just use that language as a default, which is why, I mean, you know, you have Are My Kids on Track, but that's why we wrote that book and why I think we've really leaned in to how can we help kids not only have perspective, but have resourcefulness in light yeah. of everything that's happening emotionally. So, so do they mean it when, when they say I'm going to kill myself and even the, like I'm depressed, I, you know, do they mean it or are those just words that, that their generation uses? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's really both. I, I, and it's like that both and thing. 
I see both in my office. I see kids who feel like no one's hearing them. And so they don't know what else to do, but to use those words. Are they really depressed? Are they really suicidal? I don't know that they are, but now as we're talking about 2021, I'm so worried about kids being isolated. The statistics on suicide are on the rise. So I say to parents, if your child uses those words, if they say anything about self-harm, if they say, I don't want to be here anymore, anything that sounds like that, go ahead and take them to the hospital. Because I just think we don't want to play games. We don't, we don't want um, our you know, hopefully that's what you have someone like me in your life for is to figure out how serious are they about it. But we don't want to guess if we don't have those mm-hmm. tools in that education, that background, because it's just too high of a gamble, you know, yeah. with the lives of the kids we love. Right. So sometimes I think they're trying to get attention. Sometimes I think they're manipulative. But regardless, I think we want to take them seriously because I mean, and I've said that for years, if your child is saying, I want to kill myself to get attention, something big's wrong anyway. And so you want to get help. You want to find your That's way to really help good. quickly. Yeah. When, uh, when we talk about, uh, the stressors going on in, uh, in a young person's life now, obviously COVID is, is a huge one that we're still in the midst of. And I think we are going to be for some time. Like this is, you know, I just started reading and thinking about how long it took to get rid of smallpox. Um, mm. You know, it's it's going to take some time. This is going to linger, and each state is going to operate differently. Um, but even before COVID, and 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 I think also COVID didn't remove many of the other stressors that that kids. Maybe that first couple of weeks when mom and dad and everybody was home, and actually you got to spend more time together as parents. But now, when you're in that long term grind you've got that stressor, but what are some of the maybe three or four, um, or just other top stressors that, that you feel like are contributing so much to, to an anxious generation? Well, definitely COVID and the loneliness that's come with it for kids. I think that's been a huge piece of it lately outside of that, which, you know, depending on where you're living, depending on what your kids are experiencing, I think, um, I think we had been getting to, a boiling point on this pressure cooker that is life today. And when we wrote Are My Kids on Track or Are My Kids on Track, I could remember the title. Um, I can't even remember. I, I want to say that was five years ago now. Mm-hmm. The statistics were one in eight kids were dealing with anxiety. And then two years ago, I wrote a book for parents called Raising Worry Free Girls and a book for little girls called Braver, Stronger, Smarter. By then, the statistics had jumped to one in four kids were dealing with anxiety. Girls were twice as likely. I wrote a book for teenage girls when the pandemic started because I was so worried about them. And the statistics then were one in three. And so we're just ramping up with that. And I think a huge part of it is the pressure that kids are under. I mean, it's not just I'm going to play a sport, have a practice. You know, I sit with kids every day who talk about not getting home till eight Mm o'clock and not being able to start their homework still in a pandemic. And, and so, you know, I just think they're under so much pressure. We can't, you're a lot younger than I am, but I came home from school and I did my homework and I played outside. Maybe one day a week I had a lesson, you know, and so there's this pressure to perform. There's this pressure to excel. There's this pressure to be all things, get all the good grades. And then if we talk about social media on top of it for older ones, there's this pressure to look great and like you have 5,000 people watching you and approving of everything right. you do. Yeah. So there's just so much for them now. Yeah. Well, I, I grew up, so I was born in the 70s, grew up in the you know 80s and 90s. I, I think of what my youth pastor had to deal with versus kind of where we are. And, um, oh, yeah. you know, like you had sports seasons, um, but they ended. <laughs> and then you would see like, you know, so yes, like if AAU it was, if it travel. was soccer season, then like I was going to be out on Wednesdays through soccer season and then I was going to be back. Um, and then, you know, I might play basketball, but it wasn't every Wednesday and then I'd be back now. If a, if a child is, if the, if a child wants, at least in Florida, I know this, and I think it's actually this way. Most places, if a child wants to play on a school sport, they have to basically commit to it all year long. Um, and so there's no break. They're, they're on these traveling teams. They're in and out. And I know even as a youth pastor, it's changed. Um, the soft pressure that I'll put on kids is much different than it was in the you know early 2000s when I started in, mm-hmm. in ministry, where there was much more, man, like you really need to be here. Um, yeah. and, and I don't want to do that now. Like I know yeah. they need to be here. 
But so smart, um, for, for so many of them, like that's just one more thing. And so just, you know, we want to create an environment where they want to be there, where they feel the need to be there, but not where uh, they feel disappointment from their leaders when they're not mm. there. Because I, I think that they're they're putting a lot of disappointment on themselves yes. already. Um, yeah. So that's it's a challenge. Um is there any good news <laughs> happening as far as uh, like worry, anxiety, pressure is, is what can you maybe say that's encouraging in this realm? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of good news. I think we're in the midst of, of the harder part of the news right now. Uh-huh. Um, but that's where I would, def- I mean, one thing is I would default. I read this, this great quote by Jane Catherine Wolf from their book, Suffer Strong, that talked about something about how the good story and the hard story can be the same. And I think mm, yeah. that's true. And I love that. And I keep feeling like, you know, before the pandemic, I was really worried about kids in light of that the statistics on anxiety and depression then were higher than they had been, even in the Great Depression or World War II. Wow. And and what I was seeing in counseling was that I think they, again, had all these big feelings, felt like something was wrong with them sometimes, but especially because they had never been through anything that hard collectively. Mm. I mean, individually, a lot of kids had, but I think that whole John sixteen thirty three of in this world, you will have trouble. They hadn't really seen trouble collectively. Right. And so when trouble came, I think they thought, did I bring this on? Is this about me? And so I really believe that kids five years ago had less resilience than I had ever seen kids in my almost 30 years of counseling. Whereas I think we're going to look back on this generation of kids and say, man, they've got some grit that they hadn't had in a long time. Absolutely. It, you know, um, for, for all of the ills of social media and, and like just how YouTube can just rot your brain away. One of the things that I'm seeing even in, in church, like kids who, who decide to learn an instrument, you know, one year later are five years beyond what a child would have been before because they can go on YouTube and they can mimic the best of the best. And so like if they get interested in something and if they find that passion, the deep dive that's available to them, um, the resourcefulness, they don't, they don't have to wait for an expert to come along in their life and do it because the, the experts are, are at their fingertips on there. And that is very, very encouraging. That's a cool part of um, it. Yes. Yeah, it, it really is. And not just in music. I've seen it, you know, like the, the, there are definitely some lumps on a log, uh, as far as <laughs> uh, students. Um, and I know as a parent, what I have to be careful of is not comparing the best thing of each of these other kids that I see versus that, you know, the sum total of my child's life because they're like, I'm surrounded by brilliant people academically, really good athletic people, um, you know, people with manners, all of these different things. And I'm spot picking the best behavior traits of these other kids. And so I got to be careful that I'm not disappointed in my normal child um, because they don't excel at everything across the board. But it is really cool when you see your your kid, when they light up, when they find something that they're interested in, I, I absolutely agree. Even in ministry, I see a resourcefulness in the last several years uh, that was missing, I think, from a whole generation. Um, yeah. I, I was curious, you you have mentioned that you've written these specific books for, for ladies. Is that because girls are more emotional than guys? Can you, I, can you talk to that? Um, because like, I don't necessarily see that in my house. You know, I've got two girls and two boys the the oldest girl and the youngest boy feel like they feel the depth of emotion the same, um, but it's manifested in very different ways. Right. Yes. No, I, I don't think girls feel bigger than boys. Definitely. I do think, and David Thomas, who's kind of my counterpart at Daystar Counseling, where we both counsel kids, would say that by the age of, I mean, it's really an elementary school, that all boys' primary emotions become funneled into anger. And so I don't, so the way that we talk about emotions with boys and girls looks different, Um, but they both feel as deeply. And I think we can really hurt boys when we don't acknowledge and don't give them resources to not only talk about, but to 
cope with their emotions in healthy ways, because I think that's really important. But girls are leading the statistics on anxiety. Okay. And so when the books are specifically about anxiety, that's who I wanted to talk to. But I mean, if David were sitting here beside me, he would say the Raising Worry-Free Girls book is just as applicable for boys because it's all the same tools we use at Daystar. I'm just, I counsel primarily girls, so I'm coming from that perspective. But but we just don't see it as much in boys. It's there and there are a lot of them, but it's, I mean, if I'm meeting with a girl, really, I mean, it used to be if I was meeting with a girl under the age of 13, that was a hundred percent why she was there. Now I would say adolescence too. It's just both. And, mm. and we're seeing it more that anxiety spill over into depression in the mm. last, I would say I've seen that more in the last four months than I've seen it in a long time. Can you can you help um, distinguish for us the difference between worry, anxiety, and depression? Um, I think those words get interchanged quite a bit, and it might be helpful for moms and dads to just have a baseline. What 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 do we actually mean? Um, not necessarily what our kids are saying, but right. What is the actual difference between worry, anxiety, and depression? So, I mean, we all worry sometimes. That's a natural part of life. Um, and and really a part of life that keeps us surviving and keeps us functioning is to have a little bit of worry. And so uh, you're going to hear a little bit about that from all kids from time to time. But when I become concerned about it, and and I don't even, when I talk about anxiety, I don't ever want to make it sound like I'm using a clinical diagnosis because only, again, a therapist that is sitting with or a psychiatrist that's sitting with your child can say that if that's what's going on with your child. But I think the difference to me primarily in worry and anxiety are that worry passes. You know, when we just worry, sometimes it passes. When we're more prone to worry, we can easily, the line can become really blurry. And and the way I talk about anxiety with kids is it's like the one loop roller coaster at at the fair. You know, Mm -hmm. we all have what are considered intrusive thoughts every day. So kind of the worst case scenario pops into my brain. Like, I I hope something bad doesn't happen to my, whatever, someone I love a lot, Um, my child, most often for parents. And so if I have, if I tend toward anxiety, that thought gets stuck. Oh no, I've got to watch them. I've got to make sure they're okay. And then I end up helicopter parenting Mm -hmm. or, you know, responding out of that fear. I cannot get it out of my head. So for kids, I mean, it's interesting because if we were to really look at development, basically the loop morphs over their development. So it's like whack-a-mole and it moves from a lot of kids deal with separation anxiety. Then there are a whole lot of kids who worry about throwing up or some kind of illness and then, you know, not measuring up to their peers, not performing in whatever academically athletic, something like that. You know, it just changes over Mm -hmm. time. And so if your kids come to you like, what time are you going out? When are you going to be home? Who's going to be with me? Wait, who's staying with me? Wait, where are you going again? How do I get in touch with you? You hear these endless mm-hmm. questions. That means they're stuck in a loop. So that would be how I would consider anxiety. Depression, anxiety really, I think, init- um, uh, kind of motivates. Motivates mm-hmm. is a funny word. Energizes us is yeah, a better there's word. An excitement so, to it. Not yes. necessarily good excitement, but an excitement to it. Right. Kind of a frenzy, really. Right. With anxiety, whereas depression kind of deflates. Mm. And so depressed kids, their affect is going to be really flat. They're going to be withdrawn a lot, which is confusing with teenagers because they're in their rooms anyway, especially if they're doing school virtually. And so if your child is in their room a lot, I, I talk with parents about different ways to make them emerge. Like, you know, they need to come out and eat with you. You need to go for walks as a family. You need to be having conversations together where you can see their face. You can hear their interest in different things because kids are depressed. The things they used to love, they don't love anymore. They're going to sleep more. They're going to eat more, you know, different things like that or eat less. So we just want to pay attention to all those kind of things. And then they're going to start to have kind of hopeless statements. So Mm. we just want to be aware of spending time with them and keeping a good eye on what's going on with them. I want to pivot now um, to, to spend a little time um, equipping moms and dads for, for how to handle some of these things. Um, We have, you know, let's just take my family in my house. I have four children at four different, actually one just graduated and is adult child out of the house right now, which is, 17 other podcasts that we need to walk through. <laughs> um, 
but uh, so you, you know, the three kids in the home manifest their emotions in radically different ways. Um, yes. But I, I do need some kind of baseline skill set or equipping as a parent of um, how how do I do this? So can we just maybe start out? What if if you were to coach a mom and dad on the the basic toolbox that will be most helpful for them and just in general dealing with emotions and anxiety, uh, where would you start? I would start with a feelings chart, basically, Mm. which is, you know, we talk about in the first chapter of Are My Kids on Track, helping kids develop an emotional vocabulary. And so we have them at our website, RaisingBoysAndGirls.com that you can download. But basically, I mean, we, we kind of laugh about how we feel like every family needs one hanging on the refrigerator. So that you, when your child is feeling a lot or when they're, you know, anger is a secondary emotion. And so if your child is angry, if we're angry, there's usually something else underneath it. I would say often for girls, anxiety is the same. So when I will, when I'll have a really anxious child or teenager in my office, the more we'll talk about when they get really worried, there's usually something else happening emotionally. Something's going on at home or they've been hurt by friends, something else is happening that's driving it. And so helping them learn to express the emotion that fits the situation Mm. or that fits what's happening inside of them. And so we'll encourage families to pass around a feeling chart around the dinner table and everybody pick three, because the Mm. reason for three is a lot of kids, kids will either often lean towards all the positive emotions or all of, I hate to even call them negative, but what we might consider that. And so three kind of helps them get outside of just happy, proud, grateful, you know, that kind of thing. So feelings charts is a huge one. Another one that I think is really important from a broad standpoint is helping them develop perspective that, you know, we think about emotions on a one to 10 scale and a lot of kids are living at 10. Mm. And so helping them have kind of a sense of, is this a little deal, a medium-sized deal, or a big deal? You know, that's perspective, basically. Or helping kids talk about what a 10 is. And then when they're feeling a lot, to say, now tell me what number that was for you. I think just having having a sense of perspective. And then the third big picture idea, which I think these are probably even more preventative about anxiety. And we can talk about specific tools with that. But, you know, I just don't think kids have a great sense of coping skills anymore. And so having kids, same thing, like I feel like families should around the dinner table, everybody come up with a list of 10 things that help you when you're sad or when you're worried and, you know, throwing a ball with the dog or going for a walk or taking a bath or talking to someone or praying or whatever is on their list. But I think that helps kids move towards resourcefulness and it helps kids even move towards a sense of competence. Like I I can handle my own feelings, which I think sometimes the the train gets off the track when they don't feel like they have any idea what to do with their feelings. And so those would be three really big picture ideas, I would say, when it comes to emotions and boys or girls. I really like that. Um, and I love the, especially when you're talking about um, like the feelings chart and the the perspective, those are visual as well. So yes. you, you can you can create a vocabulary, but for those of your your children who are more visual learners, that really helps. Um, and it makes a lot of sense, this, this emotional vocabulary, because the more specific you can be with how you feel, the less of a hold it can have on you. Um, almost like if you think of it from a medical standpoint, if a doctor comes in and tells you you have cancer, well, that's really scary. But what do you do with that? But if they can right. really, you know, diagnose it down to the the very specific type of cancer, well, they have treatments for a lot of types of cancer. And so as scary as it is sometimes to hear that big, long name of whatever that cancer is, that's one step closer to healing because you are able to identify it. And and I think yeah. that's so extremely important. How about with that, not only just developing the the vo- emotional vocabulary to to identify your own emotions, how important is it? And, and what are maybe some ways to help developing your child, the ability to recognize emotions in other people and, and name them? I think that's so important. And, you know, as you're saying that about cancer. I mean, I think one of the things too, about all of these, I mean, we call them milestones and are my kids on track, but you know, so much of counseling as an adult is learning to name your feelings, learning Mm -hmm. to express your feelings. And and it's why a lot of us end up in counseling as adults. 
is because we don't know how to do that from when we were kids. And and so the same, I mean, if you're in marital counseling, one of the first things you're going to ha- really have to do is read the other person's emotions. And so, I mean, I think empathy, which is what we would call that, is one of the building blocks of healthy relationships and healthy individuals. And so, I mean, with kids, there are a few, I mean, that's where I love, there are some empathy building apps that are great that you can hmm. get at Common Sense Media. I mean, it's why a lot of cartoons, if you think about like we've been watching Pixar a lot with my two-year-old nephew and Toy Story. And you think about Buzz and Woody both, and their eyeballs are so big. And some of that is training young kids to read expression. And so I think, I mean, Inside Out's a great movie to do that if you have younger ones. As they get older, just even saying like, what do you think that person was feeling in that movie? Or you're watching someone sitting at the table next to you that is obviously angry. What do you think that person, you know, kind of telling stories if you're sitting in the airport. I mean, things like that, that help them kind of fill in emotion and reading stories that are rich in emotion. With adolescents, I think it's a lot of giving them empathy ourselves. I mean, the more magic formula I always talk about with teenagers are empathy and questions. Like, that sounds really hard. Tell me what that's like for you. And what do you want to do with it? You know, that it's yeah. both things. So those would be some kind of basic tools, I would say, in developing empathy. It it sounds like in the training uh, for empathy, the more informal the setting, probably the more effective it is to to get to your kids. Like if you sit them down and are planning on having uh, a conversation about empathy, it's probably not going to go very far. But if you can do it, (laughs) if if you have a teenager and you sit down and plan on having a conversation about anything, it's probably not going to go very far. Um, yes. But if you can, you know, drive time, I always, you know, talk about morning routine, uh, drive time, meal time, and bedtime. Those are yes. great ones. And especially drive time. If you can keep kids off of the phone and everything that I, there's something I think, especially for boys, I don't know yes. about girls, but, um, not having to look at you while they're talking is, and I find this for men, you know, I do a lot of, a lot of interactions with men and, uh, you know, if I have to like sit across from them at a meal, they can wilt up. But if, if, if we can be doing something while they're yes. talking, they'll just spill their guts. I've like in yeah. the gym, I've had complete strangers come up to me and start sharing things. I'm like, why are you talking to me about this stuff? But, <laughs> but so for, for yeah. your males, especially, I think if you can have these conversations, just, you know, sometimes they're 30 seconds here or there. And if, and if they don't want to have them, you don't have to force it at that time, um, you can find another time in it, but you're just basically, it's kind of like as a parent, this is one of those kind of running things in your head that, you know, uh, look for opportunities because the Lord will present opportunities just in your daily life to do. Let me share with you a testimony from a Let's Parent on Purpose listener named Rachel. My husband happened to find Jay's podcast by searching for parenting podcasts in hopes that we could find something to listen to and discuss as a couple. We're now in the habit of each listening on our commute to work and then texting our thoughts or talking about it later in the day. The topics are all so relevant and easy to listen to, and the short clips are full of useful information and ideas that have blessed our marriage and encouraged us as parents. We're so thankful for Let's Parent on Purpose. Rachel is just one of the thousands of moms and dads who are being blessed every month through Let's Parent on Purpose. Did you know that this show is brought to you in part by our friends over at ChristianParenting.org? Maybe you've noticed their little tagline at the beginning of each of my shows. Let's Parent on Purpose is a part of the Christian Parenting Podcast Network, which is reaching over a half million moms and dads with trusted biblical guidance every month. Besides producing my podcast, Christian Parenting also develops books, workbooks, prayer journals, and other practical tools to help parents like you become the perfectly imperfect parents that God created you to be. If you're part of my Things for Thursday email group, I've been sharing great marriage and parenting articles from ChristianParenting.org for much of the past year. Today, I want to invite you to support the mission of creating more perfectly imperfect parents by giving a donation by texting CPGIVE to 474747. That's C-P-GIVE to 474747. You can also give by visiting cpgive.org. Every dollar that you give reaches one more parent with trusted biblical guidance. So please give generously. 
When you do, you'll be entered into a drawing to win a perfectly imperfect parenting bundle full of great parenting resources like the identity cards that encourage your kids in who they are in Christ and the Marked by Prayer prayer journal, as well as an Amazon $100 gift card. Christian Parenting is a 100% donor-funded and relies on listeners like you to support the future creation of parenting resources. So today, if you've been impacted by this podcast, please make a donation to Christian Parenting by texting CPGIVE to 474747. That's CPGIVE to 474747. You can also give by visiting cpgive.org to reach more people like Rachel. Thank you. If my child is kind of in uh, like an emotional tizzy, is that a helpful time to try to explain anything to them? Like the, no. they're worked up? What do, no, what do I do then? Yes. I don't want this to stop. Well, I, Often when they're in an emotional tizzy, that's anxiety. It's either anger or anxiety, and often the anxiety is underneath the anger. And so depending on the age of your child and depending on their personality, I mean, one of the first things we always want to do is get them to breathe. And it may be that you have to send them, you know, we talk a lot about creating some kind of space in your house where they've got coping skills there readily available Um, but I think every child needs some kind of technique that's a deep breathing technique because when we're in a tizzy, it means the amygdala has taken over in our brain and we're in what we call sometimes our reptile brain. So I do what's called square breathing. So they draw a square on their leg and breathe a different way with each line, pause in the corner for three seconds. So, and pause three seconds out, pause three seconds, 20 seconds of deep breathing resets the amygdala. So if we can get them to breathe for 20 seconds, that's going to dissipate a lot of that frenzy that they're feeling in the moment. Now, a lot of kids won't breathe with you because they are so amped up. So we want to, the sooner we start anything like that, the better. But if, if if we're already past the point of no return, I think with those kids, if we can get them to move, we can say, hey, go run around the house three times or go run up and down the stairs or go jump on your mini tramp, something like that with younger kids can work a lot of times, or why don't you go to the space and do some things? Now, sometimes with kids, they're not going to go away from us when they're in that moment. We've got to get away from them. And that's totally appropriate if you need to go in your bathroom and lock the door um, to get away from them, because they do need to learn to regulate their own emotions. And so giving, but they can't without the tools. So we want to give them the tools and then help them have opportunities to do that. I think you bring up a a really good point of just having the wisdom if I'm cranked up emotionally, it might not be the best time to deal with something because uh, just like our kids don't make really good decisions when when they're really angry or really anxious, uh, I also don't tend to make good decisions. Um, I tend to go overboard on, on things. Um, so that like, so that little piece I get, and I understand of, you know, sometimes it's best to tell your kid and it actually can work really well for discipline of like, you know what, that's pretty upset right now. Once you go to your room or, you know, go to your space and uh, when I have my head right, we're going to deal with this. Um, that can that can teach so much more than the initial moment. But even beyond that, if if I'm a parent and I deal with a lot of worry and anxiety, that's just kind of a natural way that I'm wired. Um, or maybe it's not a natural way. Maybe it's a circumstantial way, but it's a long-term circumstance. Like, yeah. this is the state we're in and we're not going to get out of it. Um, how much of that... And how specific should I share with my kids? Um, because they're certainly going to pick up. Like you, you cannot hide worry and anxiety over the long term. They know. Right. Um, so, yeah. what level of specificity should I share with them about what's going on inside me? Well, I think probably more than even sharing with them, I think you need to do some of your own work. I, oh, I want to say on. that very graciously as a parent. But if you have anxiety, your kids are seven times more likely to have it themselves. Wow. Some of that is genetic and totally beyond our control. Some of it is that I, there are a few different things. One of the things that I read, I did a lot of research on these worry books, but one of them was that parents who are anxious even use more catastrophic language. Like this sounds terrible huh. or this is horrible. And I would say a lot of parents who are anxious end up doing what I think they wish their parents had done for them, which is often rescuing their kids. And the reality is anybody who has, who deals with worry and anxiety, 
I mean, basically to work through our fear, we have to do the scary thing. And, and the two most common parenting strategies for anxiety are escape and avoidance. So pulling them out, which is just not helpful to kids. The definition I came up with for anxiety in the books is anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of themselves. And so if I pull a child out of a situation, I'm saying, yes, you're right. It's bigger and you're smaller. You cannot handle it. And that's the last message I want to communicate. And so I think really, honestly, until we can do our own work as adults, and I don't mean, I mean, I I think it could be great to go to therapy yourself, but even reading the Raising Worry-Free Girls book, I have had so many parents say, I picked that book up for my child and I ended up learning more about myself and what I want to do differently. And so I think, and I really wrote all three of those books as kind of a, you know, maybe this is a step where you don't even have to go to counseling. I jokingly Mm -hmm. say to work me out of a job, you know, but that's, (laughs) that's true. That's my hope. It's kind of the first few months of counseling in book form. And so, you know, I think to do something like that first, where it's not spilling over onto them and we're not aware of it. I think that's when it's really dangerous. But one of the tools I talk about in all of those books is helping kids give their worry a name. So with the little ones, I call it the worry whisperer. With the older kids, I call it the worry. I'm sorry. With little ones, I call it the worry monster. With older ones, I call it the worry whisperer. Mm. But it's what you were talking about earlier. That sense of giving something a name reduces its power. And so I'll have parents who are anxious and have done some work will say to their kids, you know what? My worry monster has been bothering me. And I'm not going to listen to him because I'm stronger than he is. And that is modeling for our kids a really healthy approach to worry and anxiety. And so I think when we're when we deal with it and we're educated and working through our own stuff, it can be a game changer for kids. Mm. But when it's spilling over because we haven't dealt with it, I think it can really harm them in ways we would never intend for it to. Yeah, it's really good. Sissy, can you speak to. how the gospel weaves in on all of this. Um, I, I know that one of the things that both young people and adults have come to me about is uh, these are believers, these are followers of Jesus, and then they read something like, be anxious for nothing, um, but by prayer and petition, present your request to God, and the peace of Christ, with, you know, God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. And um, they can't get to the peace of Christ because they feel guilty because they're worried or anxious. Yes. And so they, they feel like, well, I'm, I must be sinning every time that I'm mm. in anxiety. So um, how does the gospel uh, change worry and anxiety for a believer? Um, I, I love that question. I hate that people ever feel that way. It, it really breaks my heart um, because, you know, I think I I mean, I do think there's a lot of great scripture around fear and worry and the word anxious is used as well. And, and it's a lot of commands about do not worry, but it feels more like to me, I'm very perfectionistic in myself. And so I can hear those verses as a sense of try hard, Mm -hmm. try harder. And I don't think that's ever what the gospel is. I think the gospel is so much more about grace. And so to me, those verses are more about lay it down, Um, that it's a freedom rather than you have to get this right. Now, I I think as a therapist, I would say, you know, just like we have viruses that take over our bodies to the degree sometimes that we can't get rid of them unless we have medical help. I think what, and this is a lot of times how we'll explain it to kids. I mean, a lot of times anxiety or depression can impact our brain chemistry to the degree that not only can I not pray it away, you know, to use an old adage, but, um, but even therapy is not going to make a difference. I mean, my, with anxiety, anxiety is the most prevalent disorder among kids today. It's also mm. the most treatable. And so there are a lot of practical things we can be doing at home. And so what I say to parents is try these things at home first. If they don't work, that's when we want to talk about pulling in another voice and you want to go to therapy. And then if I'm meeting with a family for somewhere between three to six months and it feels like it's not helping, that's when I would talk about medication. And and years ago, I had a psychiatrist explain it to me this way, which made so much sense that, you know, what happens in our brain, we have these 
synapses, these nerve endings, these gaps between our nerves. And when we're anxious or depressed for a given period of time, the serotonin that's supposed to fire across that gap stops working. And when that happens, no amount of eating right, exercise, pray, other than God he miraculously healing, like he does sometimes with cancer, but sometimes he doesn't, you know, no amount of anything other than an SSRI is what the medication is called, used to treat depression and anxiety, that he's, he told me it acts like a jumper cable. And you have to be on it for a given period of time, getting it to fire again in a healthy way. And then, you know, the hope is you can get off of it. And that's when you have a medical professional who's helping you do that. But it really isn't a lack of effort on someone's part, which it can feel like that. It is a medical condition that our brains slip into when we have struggled for a long enough period of time. And so at that point, I think that's when we are wise to seek professional help in those situations. Yeah, it is really helpful. And and I'll just share with people. I So if they've listened to this podcast for some time, they know I've had a child who um, went through three and a half years of leukemia treatment um, mm, and, and he's doing well. So and in the midst of that, we Good. adopted a, a special needs daughter from the foster system who, wow. uh, you know, the, the cancer diagnosis is scary, but at least you know what you're dealing with. This other one, it's been, you know, seven years of mystery or so. And so wow. there have been periods where, okay, I'm exercising, I'm praying, I'm eating right, I'm sleeping, you know, as much as I can. I'm doing everything under my control and I still need help. And so there's yeah. been periods of that where I got on uh, kind of a low-level anti-anxiety. And then I remember a particular one-month period where there was one more thing added to my life that put me over the edge. And I went back to the doctor and said, I, I, I'm going to go nuts. I need help. Mm. Um, and so, you know, got Xanax for about three, four weeks and that was good. I didn't really like how it made me feel, but yeah. it didn't make me feel like I was going to go out of my mind, which is what was happening. And so, um, you know, I get a headache, I take Advil. Right. And if, and if I just am doing everything under my power, to help my, my emotions and spirit. And I still have a challenge. Uh, it's just praise God that you live in a day and age where they've created help for this stuff. And so I think that's really, really helpful. And just, I even think with the Bible, um, there's so much, do not worry, do not be afraid in the Bible because people worry and people are afraid. And, you know, sometimes there's an, an angel of the Lord standing in front of you and it would be terrifying. And he's saying, do not be afraid. Um, right. because that's a natural state. And I think that, you know, don't be afraid. God's in this, he's got this, yeah. but, but yeah. it doesn't mean you can switch your emotions on and off. And, uh, yes. and I really appreciate, uh, you Great speaking reminder. into that. Um, yeah. I'd love for you to maybe close and just tell us a little bit about, uh, this latest book that you have out, which I have in my hands here that people can't see through their earbuds, but brave, a teen girl's guide to beating worry and anxiety. So I wrote it as the pandemic got started, when, like we were talking about, I just was worried about adolescent girls because I felt like they were so anxious. And often the, one of the things I talk about in the beginning of the book is I think when teenage girls go through something hard, they think something's wrong with me and I'm the only one who's ever felt this way. And so the book was really meant to be like they were sitting down in my office and I got to say, you know, of course, neither of those things are true. Nothing is wrong with you. There's so much that's right with you. That is part of why you struggle with worry and anxiety. And you're definitely not the only one. And and to equip them, like we've talked about so much. I mean, it's very much to help them learn to express their feelings, to understand their feelings. The sections of the book are understanding help and hope. And so it's that sense of understanding in the beginning. It has a lot of really practical strategies. And, you know, there I read a quote years ago by George McDonald, who's a, who was the uh, C.S. Lewis's mentor. And he mm. said something about how truth in discovery takes greater hold. It was something like that. And so I think with that book and with teenagers, there's a lot of journaling, a lot of spaces for them to kind of connect the dots themselves, which is my hope always with adolescence. And then a sense of hope. And how does faith play into this for them? And how can they have a faith that really undergirds what's going on emotionally and gives them an anchor. And so anyway, yeah, I'm really excited about this book and excited about getting it, it getting its hands into girls because into the laps of girls, because I just, 
I'm just worried about them right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think anything that can equip them to stand stronger in this time and have confidence in who they are and who God's made them to be feels like a win to me. And it's a great book. I, I already have a young lady that tomorrow I'm handing it to an awesome oh, young good. lady that it's like, ah, oh, this is a, a gift of God just to hand. And so Thanks. thank you so much. I, I'd like to close and we'll just pray for those who are listening. Cause if, if they're sticking around to this part, then I know that this is a subject deep in their heart. So let's just pray uh, for the moms and dads listening right now. Father, we love right. you. We thank you so much for um, the gift of one another, for the gift of your spirit. Lord, we, we thank you that um, the, the, the trials of this world are passing, that all things are passing and God never changes. Uh, Lord, I pray that, that we would have patience and endurance um, and that you would give us profound wisdom, Lord, for the struggles in our own lives as well as to be uh, the shepherds and guides of the little ones that you've put in our midst, um, that we can point them to Jesus, that we can help walk them beside still waters, um, Lord, we look to you to restore our soul. And uh, God, I pray for any that are listening today that this is an acute struggle in their house, that, that uh, this conversation would provide them um, some relief and, and also some hope as they see some new resources that they can go after. Uh, we love you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Sissy, it's been a real pleasure and joy. Thank you so much. Oh, Jay, thanks for having me. And as I close out the show today, as always, thank you so much for listening, um, remembering that parenting is a marathon, not a sprint. And I just want to give one last reminder that you can help parents around the world in their marathon journey of parenting by supporting Christian Parenting Podcast Network and ChristianParenting.org. You can do so by texting the word CPGIVE to 474747. That's texting C. P give to 474747, making a generous donation. And then remember, you'll be entered into a drawing for their perfectly imperfect parenting bundle, full of resources to encourage you and your kids, as well as that $100 Amazon gift card. Hey, as always, I thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I remind you, you can also go to lessparentonpurpose.com for more resources. And uh, again, hang in there. Parenting is hard. It's a marathon, not a sprint, and we do it better together. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.